0: Lauren Gunderson is not only the author of *The Book of Will*. She is also the most produced playwright in America in this year of our Lord, 2017-2018. Um, <laughs> congratulations, Lauren! I I don't even think I'm worthy enough to be talking to you.
1: Oh, that is ridiculous! Thank you.
0: Lauren Gunderson is the most produced playwright in America, and has been near the top of that list for several years now. Based in San Francisco, her play Silent Sky was recently produced at Merrimack Repertory Theatre. She's a resident playwright at Marin Theatre Company. She's written a Shakespeare cycle consisting of three plays, Exit, Pursued by a Bear, Toil and Trouble, and The Taming. And her play The Book of Will, a comedy about the creation of the first folio of Shakespeare's plays, is having at least three productions this season. The first and Midwest premiere of which I'm incredibly fortunate to actually be in. We're in previews now and open this Friday, November 17th at the Northlight Theater here in Chicago. So Lauren and I were able to chat via Skype about her work generally and the Book of Will specifically. And she started by, by clarifying who the real most produced playwright in America is.
1: The actual most produced playwright, of course, is our hero, William Shakespeare. But he is so awesome that he's not even on the list anymore. They just graduated him, retired his number. <laughs> so the rest of us just, um, just as as always, are following in his footsteps.
0: Well, I feel we could, I feel we could have a forty five hour conversation about Shakespeare and about playwriting. But let's talk specifically about the Book of Will. Um, You did a great interview with the Folger Library podcast, Shakespeare Unlimited, about the creation of it. And I'm really fascinated by the nuts and bolts of it. You were inspired by the story of the creation of the first folio, a story we don't really know all that much about. And yet the script you've written feels to me like that other documentary, Shakespeare in Love. It it, it feels like the story... By which we will now understand the creation of the first folio.
1: Oh wow! I hope I did I did it justice then. <laughs> well, and it seems but like yeah. you
0: fudged very little of the historical record to tell your story. But yeah. let's start with: it was your first um, was your first way in the relationship between Hemings and Condell?
1: Um, It it was I was reading this fabulous book called The Book of William, which is uh, about the folios, but less about their creation. The first chapter is about the creation and the people who created it. But the rest of the book is kind of the buying and selling and stealing and forging of the folios, which is very interesting, but a more modern kind of. Um, rambunctious story. And it was that first chapter that I read so many years ago. And I just literally highlighted the entire chapter. <laughs> Every sentence was like, well, that's got to be in a play. Well, that's got to be in a play. That's got to be in a play. And of course, the, the core elements that made me start to think this has got to be a story that that well, at first I thought there must be a play <laughs> about this um, and delighted to find out that there wasn't so I could cor- <laughs> corner the market on that one. Um, but it was it was this, the the relationship between Hemmings, Condell, Shakespeare, and Burbage. And the idea that these four um, giants, especially we, we certainly know Burbage and we certainly know Shakespeare, but Hemings and Condal, uh, some people know them, but, but not many do. And they are really the heroes of any Shakespeareophile in the world because they did the work to Mm -hmm. gather these plays to think, oh, maybe this is valuable uh, enough to to keep around. I certainly like the plays. Maybe other people will. Um, And it was what I realized was um, a modern audience would think, well, just publish the plays. It's not that hard, you know. And of course, back then it was uh impossible it was um an adventure <laughs> you had to to you had to survive and be resilient through an, a journey um to really figure out what um uh what what, what would even be possible to, to to accomplish it how you could even do it how you could pay for it how you could manage it so suddenly it felt like not only a great story about brotherhood and friendship and about art and legacy but this kind of caper <laughs> yeah. which which it, it ends up feeling that way um and of course capers the whole point of why they're so interesting is they challenge our main characters bring out the best and worst of each other and they end up really relying on each other in ways they didn't even know before and that's certainly the case um in 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 this story
0: absolutely uh yeah it, it feels like ocean 1619 <laughs> A little bit. Uh, they're I putting love it. putting together the crack team of the Ralph Crane and Ben yes. Johnson for the preface and everything else. Um, and the explosive expert and the <laughs> <laughs> right and the guy who can fit into tight spaces. Exactly. Yes, I like um, that one. <laughs> well, and yes, it's and it's about friendship and uh, uh, it's about friendship. But there's also this element between Hemings and Condell of brothers, a brotherhood amongst these. Yes. Acting lions, um, and with, with Burbage as well. Was it conscious that Heming, the Brotherhood of Hemings and Coddle uh, had echoes of the many battling brothers in Shakespeare?
1: Absolutely I mean I it was probably unconscious at first, but then writing the play not in the only in their relationship but in the relationship between um, John and his daughter Alice um, the relationship between the wives and their husbands, the kind of um, antagonist um, I mean all of those relationships are directly stolen from various relationships in in Shakespeare's work because you really can't not steal because it, it's so archetypical at this point those. Right those relationships, those roles. Um, so I did find myself unconsciously. And then once I realized I was doing it anyway, it's like, all right, let's just, let's be outright about this. Um, yeah.
0: Well, and and I'm watching, you know, in rehearsals and we just had our first preview, um, last night and, uh, nobody walked out, which I thought was a very good sign. Oh,
1: obviously. (laughs) Yeah. That's, 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 bare minimum
0: <laughs> um, but I'm watching uh, Jim ortlieb playing uh, John Hemmings and Gregory Linnington playing Henry Condell, and they're so good together the characters are so good together I, I, I feel like oh it's I would love to see them in the odd couple these two actors <laughs> but I am seeing them in the odd couple without having to watch the odd couple it's That's very great. funny um, there's a lot but there's a lot of um, uh, real strong emotion. Yeah. Uh, as you said, amongst the wives, and I think you you've talked about this play as as also being about loss, yeah can absolutely. you talk a little bit about that
1: well, sure, I mean during that time um, in England's history and in the world's history death was early and often. Um, and so they're constantly surrounded by it. Of course, we have the the story of Shakespeare losing his son Hamnet. Um, and, and just trying to process, uh, we almost lost Shakespeare when he was a baby. That was a, a plague year. And so okay. the idea of losing him even at that infancy is makes one hold their heart. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so really trying to, to honor that time and, and find context in it that death was never far away. Um, so, Part of what is the engine of the play is a little bit of a battle, a race against death. Um, you know, the the, we, they, the play opens and Shakespeare's been gone a few years, but just, just a few, two or three. So they're they're still reeling from that that loss and the absence of it, as anyone does who loses someone important to them. But that becomes instead of just the weight of nostalgia, it becomes an engine. We have to, let's preserve this. Let's save it. Let's treasure it. So I think we see them turn loss, um, into, into action. Um, which, which is what happens in a lot of Shakespeare plays too. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that are met with betrayal or, or loss or crisis and they turn it into, to a- action whether you're you know viola or Hamlet or
0: <laughs> well <laughs> um, and, and even <laughs> it, it, it's not only the loss of people we've lost but it, it, it's very it's very clear at least um, at least for Henry Condell as you've portrayed him that the fear of the loss of the plays yes. is such a driving force
1: yeah absolutely yeah because we, we again we start with um, a few things that are normal to our characters, but abnormal to us, which for them, Shakespeare's plays weren't really written down in, in a way to preserve them. There were quartos, but quartos were more like magazines and less like books. Yeah. Um, and uh, printing was really expensive and not a lot of people had enormous books. This was still in a time when, you know, the Oxford had books on chains because you were supposed to go read them in the library and leave them and then right. <laughs> go home. You know, you didn't check them out. You didn't, you know, some people owned them, but you had be pretty rich. So the idea of of and and theater was in some ways more like television. It was something you'd go see, everyone went and saw it, and the next night it wasn't on or another play would be on. You know, it's so that sense of we don't we don't really treasure TV scripts mm-hmm. in the way that we treasure the theater as a literature now. Yeah. So kind of, you know, rewinding to that time and thinking how temporal it all was. Yeah. Well, of course, I, I put the idea in Henry's brain first of, well, that's ridiculous, let's keep them, we have to keep them. And of course the other characters are like, but why would we do that? We just don't do that now. And he of course has to argue. And, and then it makes great sense because as the audience, watching a play about Shakespeare's plays, we're all going, please keep them, please.
0: <laughs> and you've got a lovely moment. Alice his <laughs> daughter um, has a great thing about, he, she doesn't want to lose these characters. That's you know, right. Especially Roslyn. the women for her. Especially the women, Lady M and Rosalind and and, and Beatrice. Hi, I'm Ken Ludwig, a playwright and author of Lend Me a Tenor, Crazy for You, Baskerville, and the new book, How to Teach Your Children Shakespeare. And you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? The Redue Shakespeare Company's U.S. fall tour of all the great books abridged, William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged, and the ultimate Christmas show abridged continues this week with performances in Asheville, North Carolina, Maryville, Tennessee, Somerville, New Jersey, San Jose, California, Algona, Iowa, Reston, Virginia, and La Mirada, California. Next winter, we'll perform William Shakespeare's Long Lost First Play, Abridged, Off-Broadway at the new Victory Theater in New York City. And next June, we'll return to the Pittsburgh Public Theater to close out their season with our production of Long Lost Shakes and pop-up Shakespeare is now already in its second printing and on sale worldwide. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office venue and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with playwright Lauren Gunderson. There are two deaths in the play, and I don't want to mention who dies for people who haven't seen it or read it yet, um, but I think it's it's so. I thought it was such genius that the death of one of them is the inciting incident. Indeed, for where this goes, I mean, that's just. Did you read that and go, "Aha!" Did that did that take you months and months? How did you yeah. come up with that?
1: Well, um, this was um, part of the the um, exploration of this time was not just me on my own and an early colleague, Nick Avila, um, is a great director and dramaturg and he really helped me pour through the history of that time just to see what was the context, what was actually going on, who was really there. And then I took that and kind of built the play out of these important elements. And he was the one who, when we just kind of laid it down in a chronology of what was going on at the time, noticed, um, who was living and dying. Um, it really, uh, became pretty obvious. Uh, how to align some of these lives with, um, the action of, of the play. Um, and I'm a big fan of surprises. I'm a big fan of having the audience get comfortable and then ripping the rug out from under them, (laughs) not for the sake of jolting them, but to, to remind them. And again, in a play about loss in a play about, um, treasuring what's valuable while you have it. And, um, the ephemerality of, of art and life. It felt like that was a perfect way to, to kick us off in that way.
0: It, it really is. One of the other great things I love about Book of Will is, it is, is is, there have been so many depictions of Shakespeare recently, not just Shakespeare in love, but that sort of unfortunate miniseries that was on TNT and upstart crow in the, in, in England. And, um, And yet somehow it feels like to me that Book of Will gets closer to an understanding of Shakespeare the man by depicting so many of his friends. Yes. And how they saw him. We see Shakespeare through their eyes, through the eyes of the people who, who knew him. And it feels like I've gotten closer to an understanding of Shakespeare the man than I think I've ever been.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. I, I, I really hope that to be the case. Um, and for that to be a play where Shakespeare's not even in it, yeah. um, I think is a, is, is a great confirmation of what I was really trying to do with this play, which I, I often say that Shakespeare does not need help with revering himself. You know, he's got that under control. We're all on the bandwagon. What he really needs help is humanizing. Mm. Who, who was he? And of course, because we know so actual little about him, but we do have, um, as many Shakespeare scholars have mined over and over again, all of, the, all of the connections and the context in which he lived and, you know, the littlest scratch of a note here and there. Um, but there was one book that I was reading called, I believe it was called The Shakespeare Circle, um, which it just does exactly what you said. It profiles all of the people that they can find in somehow um, in, in his sphere, uh, somehow connected to him. And that was a, a great resource for me to really figure out beyond Burbage, Hemings, and Condal, kind of who, who else is, is there. Um, and I, I do find that so compelling because I, it's kind of like Tom Sawyer overhearing his own funeral. <laughs> Like, there's a little bit of, I. that's kind of what I would want to hear what people say about me at my own funeral, <laughs> um, and, and you might be surprised, you know, here and there, like, I really thought they didn't like me that much, but, you know, so I, I think the, the idea of Ben Johnson is, of course, a big character in the play, and and he and shakespeare had this notorious rivalry but a rivalry like that had to actually come from respect yeah. i mean ben jonson is not a character that would bother with somebody he didn't actually think was of some value you know he's too too he'd be over that really quickly so their battle their um the the fight in them i think in this play it was such a pleasure to explore what's behind that as a true uh, a true friendship and a brotherhood that's um you know, that, that, that is prickly on the outside, but really soft on the inside.
0: Well, and, and it's like um, ex-presidents getting together. They're the only ones who have done this job. Who's Ben Johnson going to tussle with? Fletcher? Right. No. <laughs> Wilkins? Forget about it. Uh, yeah, of course they would. They're the only two titans, the literary right. titans. And I guess inevitably, uh, it, it becomes a, the play becomes a celebration of not just Shakespeare, but theater. And I think, and, and so when I go, oh, it's 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 so nerdy. Oh, only the Shakespeare geeks are going to get it. I don't think that's true because yeah. it's really about why we all gather communally in this space. I yeah. mean, Hemmings' um, beautiful rant at the top of Act Two about mm-hmm. well, and Henry's, you know, are why we come together in the theater in the first place. Again, was that a thing that you discovered as you went? Of that idea, or was it there from the beginning?
1: I mean, it's something I've been thinking about for a long, long time in a lot of different ways. It's, there's the kind of Shakespeare literary avenue of why do we bother doing this 450-year-old writer um, now. Um, and then I, I even go way back, because I'm a bit of a, a, a science nerd. I mean, I go back to the beginning of human language, and there's something that art and story gives us that history and statistics do not. And it's the reason why we make art. And we make a lot of it as human beings. Birds really don't, dolphins don't, other smart and intelligent animals don't. And we don't do it just a little bit. It's everywhere, constantly in every corner where humanity exists. So it gives us something of an evolutionary advantage. It, it helps our survival. And from that perspective is where I wanted to, to take that moment at the top of act two where Henry is really helping John through a very hard moment by saying, it seems not to make any sense, but it, it does make sense because as, as Henry says, the fairies aren't real, but the feelings are. And, and in that way, we really are practicing living by watching theater. We are practicing empathy and sympathy. We're practicing being resilient through sorrow and betrayal and and practicing how do we handle and, and engage with joy and wonder. And that's really, the performing arts do that in a way that TV and film and certainly anything on your phone does not does not do um, because it is social. It is actively, it's more social media than social media is because it's actually social. We're there, live. The actors are in front of you. I mean, watching your performance, you're feet away from these people there watching you live and learn and love and lose. And I, I'm constantly overwhelmed by that feeling in the theater and it is unlike any other art form and i think that's why it's not going anywhere because it's so old it's primal us gathering and saying around the fire or in the old in the globe theater in north light theater right now it's the same system of going get live people together have them all focus on other live people going through really amazing, really hard, really strange and beautiful things. And the people watching get to, as you know Henry describes, you get to feel, you get to learn, you get to test your heart against trouble and joy, and you get to walk away feeling like, I am yet living. Okay, there's more to do in the world. Um, so I love to talk about theater in a way that Henry talks about it in the play as kind of a... Life-giving, life-exploring, um, life-saving medium, but also in like this is what helps us survive. It is part of our um, part of our evolution as a creature of a brain and feeling. This is the product of it. Like we we need theater. Um, so I'm, i I was quite quite delighted and proud of that moment in Act Two because I think it does take it talks about them what they were doing it talks about what people been doing for thousands of years it talks about what we're doing right now in 2017
0: That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Lauren and I kept chatting about the play in more detail, but it's a little spoilery, so I'll save that conversation for a few weeks from now to give you a chance to see it here in Chicago or read the play by ordering it from Dramatist's Play Service at dramatists.com. And if you can make it to Chicago in the next month, go to northlight.org for tickets to see the Book of Will. But for now, send us your comedy about loss via email to feedback at You can also engage with us and other fans on Facebook or Twitter. You can find easy links to all these social networks at our website, reducedshakespeare.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Lauren Gunderson on Twitter, too, at LalaTellsAStory. Thanks, as always, to Poet Laureate Matthew Croak. web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Eric Shova. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Ken Ludwig, another of the most produced playwrights in America this season. Follow Ken on Twitter at Ken underscore Ludwig. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 569, 1707ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. It's such a great play. It's so funny. And yet, I don't know what it says about me, but I am so moved to tears at many points during the play. Oh, good.
1: I love making grown men cry.
0: <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much, and less. Less. So much, less. <laughs> so much less. So much less. So much less. So